0: So, welcome to another investor investor podcast. Today we have Shirin Degan, who joined the Cambridge Angels only about nine months ago or something like that. So, actually, I don't know Shirin very well at all. So, I will learn a tremendous amount from this interview. Let's talk about your background, education, etc., and what your first job was as an electronics engineer, I believe.
1: Yeah, so I'm Shirin Degan, and uh, I was born in Iran. I uh, moved to the UK when I was 14 with my parents. So I went through part of my schooling in the UK and did electronics at Southampton University. I then joined the professor who ran the communications department. It had a, it effectively a side company. So that was my first taste of joining a small company. And I absolutely loved it. And I did everything from signal processing coding to writing the first ray tracing algorithm in the world and bringing that as a product so basically followed a technical career
0: were there many women on your course
1: well uh, there were two girls who started including me and after three months I was the only girl standing and the reason the other one left was uh, she got pregnant so she took a year out oh dear oh dear (laughs) So I followed a technical career, joined Vodafone Research and Development, again in the mobile communications industry, uh, focused on third-generation mobile networks. At the time, that was all new.
0: So when was um, it? This was, the this was back
1: in mid-90s, um, was it?
0: Yes, it yeah. was, yeah. yeah.
1: And again, really enjoyed sort of working for a bigger company and got the taste of what it was like. So it went from really small to really big and as i was working for vodafone i got my idea for my own business for my own software startup and it was in the area of mobile telecoms and selling software to mobile operators to specifically focus on solving the uh, the third generation mobile network problem and the idea at that time was that well internet on the move was not really a thing we could only make voice calls and we could only send smss and that was and a whack bad.
0: was around was yeah, it yeah but
1: it was just really bad so yes. nobody used it but everyone in the industry, absolutely believed in that vision that eventually someday we were going to make this happen. So, sitting as part of that, uh, shall we say, uh, long-term look into the market, I knew that data was going to be absolutely critical, and it was going to completely, you know, shall we say blow away some of the networks that are stable right now because they're just handling voice. And once you put data on top of them, it's just going to...
0: And was this the know. days of GPRS or Edge?
1: Yeah. So, so there was DSM, there was GPRS, but basically very low data. Very slow. Very slow, very, yeah. slow, very yeah. low data. But if you were going to go towards the video calls to streaming and all of these things at that time, just vision and then uh, clearly mobile network operators were going to have big problems. And there wasn't anything out in the market, no software tools to really address this. So engineers were all GSM engineers. All the software products were all gsm oriented voice oriented
0: So which That's year was 98,
1: 97? So early 2000.
0: Oh, really? So yeah. just as a dot-com bubble? That's right. Bubble, yeah, bubble, bubble, bubble
1: when I started my business, yeah, the dot-com happened. <laughs> Talk about bad timing. Which meant that I literally couldn't raise any money at that time. So I just, you know, developed the products on my own with a couple of engineers. Were
0: you a sole founder or did you have a... No,
1: well, what happened was, well, I founded the company. I was the sole founder at the beginning. And then a year later, when I got some seed money, then my husband joined me because he's also an engineer. And then we hired another engineer, but we were two founders kind of...
0: Ish. From that. Yeah, yes. okay. from that. The company is ARISO? That's correct, yes. And the, was that an acronym or...?
1: No, it's actually a star constellation. So <laughs> at the time I was searching for company names, I wanted something that was different. And a lot of companies in the telco space were Softcom or Com something else. And it was a lot of acronyms like that. And frankly, it was very difficult to stand out. So I thought I wanted a company name that begins with an A. So it comes up on the Google search. And I wanted something different. This
0: is pre-Google all this, wasn't it?
1: Well in, no, there was certainly
0: search- Yahoo, weren't you at that Oh point? Yahoo, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm sure Google, Google around, yeah, it was around, but only about three years old at that yeah, point. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you raised some for funding, you fed some so, seed. Was it see, angels?
1: Well yes, but it was my chairman who put some money in, my brother. So it was friends and family. Yeah. And so we got about, I think, a hundred thousand pounds together and that's how we managed to actually earn some salary and, you know, start paying a few engineers and so on. Whilst we were developing the product, I was also selling, as you do when you're Mm -hmm. very early stage uh, as, you know, CEO, founder, if you will. You do everything from, you know, selling, fundraising, developing the product, testing, (laughs) writing documentation, everything that there was to it. So, yeah, so that was that was quite good fun and started building a pipeline I actually got a lot of the mobile operators in the UK interested in the product. Which was, you know, unheard of because these are multi-billion-pound gorillas, and uh, and they were interested in this little was the company. Was product
0: more than slideware at this point? It was an MVP almost, or not?
1: I would say that when I raised the funds from my chairman and also brother and so sort of friends and family, it was a prototype stage. So it wasn't something we could put in a customer's mm. uh, premise. But by the time I managed to get O2 UK, Vodafone UK and various other UK operators interested, it was becoming a real product and that you could actually put in the hands of engineers.
0: How many staff were you at that point when they started? Three. Still three?
1: Yes. And, and then we had a couple of people who did sort of accounts and sort of part-time.
0: So you're already getting a bit of product market fit and yes. you're getting income as well from customers are you?
1: Not really. No. It was still very much pre-revenue, but we were also I was also searching for uh, for funding because, you know, it takes time to sell to mobile operators and so anyway, so we managed to get our first VC funding just before we closed out to UK, yeah. which was, uh,
0: <laughs> was uh, And who was that from?
1: from? So that was from Ad Partners, who they don't exist anymore. And uh, Top Technology, who sold to IP Group.
0: And Top Technology was?
1: Harry Fitzgibbon uh, okay. and Martin Fines in oh, London. Yes. Yeah.
0: And how much was that around?
1: So we raised one and a half million pounds. So three years after I left my job and started the companies. And when we raised the funding, then we had some real money to go and actually hire people rather than just having mm. sort of three full time and then some people working part time mm. for free and that kind of thing. So we were at that time, we won 0 2 uk but we were working on a very, very large contract, which was Vodafone Group. And that was a 12 million euro contract. The 0 2 uk was nice. It was like 250,000 pounds, which we you know, obviously closed and that was fantastic. But it was really the 12 million euro that was going to completely change. And they,
0: the they were willing to give you this little company that had an undercapitalized balance sheet.
1: We were were in the RFP process and our software was in the hands of the Vodafone engineers and they were loving it. And that was when I learned my very biggest lesson of my life because I lost that contract to a competitor
0: in Uh, Germany. And why did you lose it? Not on price, on something else, I guess.
1: No, it was was purely because, you know, as a technical founder, I was uh, naive commercially, Mm -hmm. if I'm candid. Also, I focused a lot on sort of the engineering and technical Mm. side of things. So I was making sure all the engineers were happy with my products, but I really didn't have any clue about some of the politics Mm. that was going on within the Vodafone sort of group, where Germany had more political clout than than the UK. And of course, uh, that wasn't apparent to me at the technical level when I was working for Vodafone. And, And of course, I really didn't think to think about those kinds of things when I was selling to them. And the other thing was that I, I was really selling to the engineers, but I wasn't selling to the people who were right. the budget holders and who had the money and, yes. and, and so
0: on. So I wasn't doing all the schmoozing. And
1: And, and also probably
0: quiet. your balance sheet did kick in at that point. We'd seen as a small British company. And yes. I don't know who the competitor was. Oh,
1: they were small as well. Oh, they were? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was purely my personal sort of inexperience in, in selling a large enterprise software to a very complex
0: But that might have been a huge piece of luck. You might have gone bust because of this contract. you never know.
1: Except that the product was very robust. It was already being used by 50 engineers within the UK.
0: So technically, you'd solved it. Exactly. And the price was right. Therefore, you would have made money. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: So so we didn't have a product that had a lot of bugs. We'd we'd really done a good job on that. And our product was delivering far better than the competitors' products. And in my unfortunate, naive technical World, I thought the best technical product, of course, is going to the, win the better
0: mousetrap. Yeah.
1: So that was a, that was a big lesson, and and losing that contract was obviously a massive blow to mm-hmm. the company, and not only did I lose that contract? But with that contract gone, 70% of my pipeline now disappears. Because what happened was, and inevitably happens in in any sector that's fairly closely knit, is when the market leader, in that case Vodafone, goes with a company, everyone else want to go with that vendor. So we had OTUK, we managed to close a couple of Vodafone sort of operators who went against the group decision in other countries countries, but frankly like Vodafone, Romania, Iceland like basically Mm -hmm. we got the crumbs (laughs) (laughs) and really the competitor the German competitor they were cleaning up in Europe literally I mean wherever we went we were being faced by but why did you lose lose Vodafone again it's like oh come on like you have to keep explaining Mm -hmm. yourself at that time I thought well there's no point in you know, messing around in Europe. So I switched my attention to US because they weren't in US. So I thought, let's go over there. <laughs> Cause, uh,
0: and you're an early stage company with a few yeah, employees. Yeah, we literally
1: about, you know, oh,
0: That was a dangerous move potentially. Eight
1: well, I yeah. had to because yeah. I was literally just losing left, right and center. Mm. I win-loss analysis was just brutal at right. every board meeting. So I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to US, and I literally went and lived out there for a year. And I took my best pre-sales guy who I had in the UK, and he came with me. He was a young guy and fantastic energy and work ethic and everything else that you need to go and set up your kind of offices. But how
0: many operators over there are there?
1: There are four, but very large. And yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So AT&T on its own is equivalent to winning Vodafone Group. Kind of, it's massive. And that was the best move I made, because I don't think I'll be here talking to you if I, if I mm-hmm. didn't make that move. So I went out to the US, took a long time to sell, and getting to at and I had no idea, you know, who they were, or who the executives were. But mm-hmm. I had I learned my lesson. I was now sort of focusing
0: on budget holders and trying to get my relationship. They were using around. CDMA, were they still, at that no, point? No, yeah. they moved to GSM. Um, yeah.
1: Verizon and Sprint were using yeah. IS-95 technology, but uh, AT&T and T-Mobile were using the normal stuff, 3G and so on. So really, we had only pick of two. So I went for the biggest, AT&T. And we were quite lucky because at that time, there was AT&T and Singular, and they had just merged to make Mm. a bigger AT&T company. And because of the merger of two networks, they had a lot of sites on both sides to bring together. And our solution was the only one that allowed them to do that. And we won some really nice service contracts. Uh, managed to win like a couple of million of contracts and working for them using the product and so on. And as we kept using the product, their engineers kept liking what you know the product did. And eventually, we got into an RFP and won a which dwarfed deal. the twelve
0: million. I guess did it or?
1: Well, by the time we sort of got that, it was about 5 million that we okay. managed to get out of AT&T, right. so not quite as much as what uh, Vodafone ends up doing, but still,
0: it sort of and saved where the we company. are about oh,
1: So we're about 07. And
0: so you've grown to about 20 or 30 people at that point, had you?
1: Yeah, less than 20. Yeah, because you hadn't raised
0: about. another round at this point, though. No. You?
1: So that really kind of saved the company, frankly, mm. and so 95% of our revenue was AT&T, which was not a good thing. <laughs> but I assume sort of realized that, frankly, fine off one AT&T, but where next? Because, you know, I was just... The, the market was gone, right? The competitor cleaned it up and they dropped the prices. I mean, that's another thing they did in the market that, you know, frankly, it just wasn't worth it anymore to go into Asia, go to Africa. It, you know, the price, the pricing just... Are they still in existence, it? this other country Oh, yeah. I mean, they were doing it amazing. Like yeah. They uh, exited in 2006, so... If I had executed like they did, I could have exited a lot (laughs) earlier. But anyway, I thought, okay, well, either there are really two choices I've got. Either I'll come up with another product or it's a fire sale for Mm. this company because, frankly, this isn't going to go anywhere Mm. and the only way is down. I sat down with my investors, kind of said, look, you know the vision that I started the company with? Well, that vision needs to come reality. I need to actually develop it. Because you know how you raise money, you sort of tell them what you're doing now, and then you paint this amazing picture in the future, and everyone's like, okay, well, they've got something now. I say, well, you know that now thing? Well, that didn't work, so you've got to really go for
0: (laughs) For the hard
1: stuff. Yeah. And bless them, they supported me.
0: With <laughs> some more funding. With some
1: more funding to bridge to a B round.
0: So the existing investors put more money, another million or, so, or less. Yeah,
1: yeah, So so yes, they put another couple of million. Yes. And then I needed a really big round, like £5 million, yes. to really invest in the second product that uh, fulfilled the vision, shall we say.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that product first, and then we'll talk about the financing of it. So what is this new vision or change of vision?
1: So basically, when I raised money, I raised money on on the premise of enabling self-optimizing networks. So what that meant was a mobile network effectively was figuring out exactly what was going wrong with the quality of service that the subscribers were experiencing, and it would fix itself. So completely autopilot, yeah, Hmm. by basically changing the network parameters and Everything else and all of the data was going to come from the actual subscribers from the handsets, right?
0: Quality of service, signal and signal exactly. strength, etc. So it was yeah.
1: all going to be automated, mm. autopilot, and that was the vision. And that's how. ISO starts coming. The first product had elements of that. So it had the automated optimization, but it was an offline product where the engineers had them on their, their
0: the workstations. Yeah. But the
1: collection of data wasn't coming from the handset. It was coming from drive testing. So it was very much a um, sort of offline mm. tools uh, for so out engineering. Of, out of date
0: as soon as you got the data, uh, exactly. exactly.
1: So yeah. it was for engineers. Yeah. And then engineers would figure stuff out yeah. and they would sort of put it in the network kind of thing. So it was very much offline Mm. tools thing. And that was our first go in the market. But clearly that, that market kind of went away. And so we had to go for this enterprise grade real time, big data. Before big data became sexy, we had to build, you know, probably the first big data company.
0: As did the competitor or not? Or were they?
1: No, they, they had sold to another bigger company, which were focused on drive testing. So they, they were doing something else. So developing this would completely wrong foot all of our competitors. Right. So managed to convince Qualcomm Venture and OCP, Richard Marsh,
0: yeah, uh, <laughs> of course. Yes. David Mott and, and exactly. his father, presumably, in those days. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah, so together they put in five million pounds into the company. And because I, I knew that I had to build a completely different product, the engineering staff I had just didn't have the experience. So my husband was the CTO at the time. So I asked him to step down from the CTO position, so he became chief science officer and actually hired in a CTO. A really fantastic guy, very, very bright, literally a, a, a rocket scientist. He used mm-hmm. to work for NASA and, and he was working for Bell Labs. I had no idea to this day how I managed to convince this guy to leave his amazing job and come and join this tiddly little and company. To move
0: from America to here. I well, guess, he actually UK. stayed
1: in, in New oh, Jersey, oh, so he was remote. But yeah. I, he was so good that I didn't care, frankly, where yeah. he sat. So I managed to bring him on board as CTO and also I brought in a chief architect who had built big systems for billing system and and also performance management type of things because I knew I had to... I had a completely different problem to solve. So I I started augmenting and changing the the technical team in order to build what we needed to build.
0: This wasn't public cloud, was it? Or even private cloud? This was on-premise, was it?
1: It had to be on-premise because mobile operators still to date, they're they're very suspicious about their data leaving their premise. It's a bit like banks, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. So yeah, so we embarked on building this big beast and we... Started uh, selling it in, um, you would not believe this, but in 2008, 2009, when yes, another financial crash happens. <laughs> so <laughs> I've had the start of the company sort of coincide with dot com, and then sort of my second product launch. We
0: had some cash in the bank from the investors. That's Absolutely. The yeah, yeah. Thing. so we
1: were, we, were, yeah. we were fine. But we were launching this product obviously into a very uncertain environment, and a lot of customers cut back, and you know specifically AT&T, who were obviously very
0: dependent on. This was something that customers would notice. Quality of service is critical to all Absolutely. of us, isn't it? And, so they and wouldn't even pull pulled from the market, otherwise you get churn of customers, don't you?
1: That is exactly correct. And the other fortuitous thing was that because iPhone came out in 2008, and as I had predicted... Data really hit the network. Mm. So essentially, we've got AT&T CEO coming in apologizing for basically the network going down. OTUK came and apologized. And these are all my customers. So that was like, fantastic. I can go and sell this product because our product was the only way they could tell where things were going wrong because we were gathering all of the data out of the handset at the network level, all anonymized but they were effectively crowdsourced from all the handsets and figure out exactly what was going on at a very granular level. Mm -hmm. Much better than drive testing, because drive testing can't drive test inside buildings, so we Mm -hmm. could tell them exactly where things were.
0: And your product uh, was ready to be pushed out as the iPhone... Was being launched or had launched?
1: Yes. So it was, you know, it was a minimum viable product sort of level. And and we were doing something massive because no one had ever tried this before to gather every single signaling message that was going from a mobile handset to a base station and vice versa. So we were handling like billions of data records. Cool. And... With that comes some interesting challenges, which meant that my chief architect was literally chained to every installation that we had to make. (laughs) To tweak it? Well, yeah. I mean, literally on-premise we were fixing bugs, obviously not telling the customer (laughs) we're doing that. But, you know, it was because we didn't have a network to test it with. That's No, because they couldn't. Exactly. Exactly.
0: You had to test it on a live network, didn't you? Yeah,
1: Exactly. So it was some uh, midnight hairy moments, you know, uh, I was out there sort of testing with the guys and, you know, they were fixing bugs. Anyway, we managed to kind of do this without the customer really knowing it. I call it human shield. Mm. At the beginning, our product had to go with, Sort of number of people around it <laughs> to
0: stop the customer. which is probably true of many software systems, isn't it? You, Correct. Yeah. But
1: when you're playing with someone's live network, it's, it's a bit scary. If you
0: can bring it down, you can bring a cell down, I suspect, exactly. or a Walmart cell, or a city, almost.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, we did. We did blow up the IT in San Francisco.
0: <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: Because <laughs> our processing power is just using up so much electricity. Of their so, yeah, system, yeah, of yeah, yeah. For, yeah. Not, not the network. Yeah we probably shouldn't have plugged it into where the kettle was. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, we did what we had to do. but it just went viral. I mean, we deployed in Los Angeles um, and at and t Los Angeles market, and then they loved it. We went to Dallas, we went to San Francisco, literally within like six or seven months, all of the different big cities. And, and as you can imagine, San Francisco itself is like a country in, the, in Europe, right? So it's it's so big.
0: Well, certainly and Silicon Valley together, is, isn't it? Well,
1: exactly. Dallas is yeah. like, you know, yeah. a small European country kind yeah. of thing. So mm. so we were literally going around and, mm. and selling and we were doing it on a kind of a SaaS model and extracting millions and millions out of these guys. And HQ hadn't even realized what what was going on on the ground so it's
0: a low yeah. enough budget they could sign off for a million dollars well half. because
1: every city has such a big budget anyway there are lucky like little mini billion dollar businesses so you know uh, dallas has got a billion for example as a as expenditure
0: with one network
1: yes with well, just there's dallas there's no. goodness so you know so, so the head of dallas could write checks yes. for two or three million you yeah. know easily no mm. problem so the HQ kind of didn't realize this was going on and we did, really didn't want them to realize it. It was like we kept it quiet and we just, we just sort of went viral amongst all the different cities. And I think we were extracting about 12 to 15 million out of AT&T. And then we also went and sold it to MTN in South Africa because World Cup was coming up in 2010 and they bought it for the World Cup mm. and they used it to make sure that the network didn't go down during yeah. the World Cup. Right. And then straight after, the CEO bought it for all of South Africa. And that was a $3 million deal. And then made a deal with us for the group. And we went to America Mobile. America Mobile bought it for all of their operations in all their countries. And that turned out to be a $20 million contract. So basically, it just grew from there. And having learned the lessons of, you know, technology is a, is an important piece, but not the only thing. <laughs> And you've got to do all the go-to-market, your marketing, sort of competitive positioning, uh, you know.
0: Because the, the competition so would so. be starting to think about moving to your space. Or?
1: Well, the competition at first started just sort of rubbishing what we were doing. And mm. then eventually they realized, we're just like, we're going off. Mm. And they started switching and following us, but mm. we were two or three years ahead of them. And it was very difficult for them to catch up because fundamentally it was a very difficult
0: problem to solve. The Series B, it happened, and you didn't need any more cash. You became profitable, presumably.
1: Yeah, we just needed a little bit of top-up to increase our sales and marketing. I think we just got another million and a bit, just to kind of get a little bit more cash buffer. But that was it. So we raised, in total, like uh, 7, 8 million pounds.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. And you're now, what, 50, people or something? Or? Yeah,
1: so we were coming up to... 2011 and 2011. Yeah, we were about 50 people, roughly okay. speaking, and we had AT we had AMX, we had um,
0: Vodafone. So before we talk about the exit, which is coming up shortly yeah. in your journey, talk about the board and how they've assisted, and you know, maybe not assisted. What you know, what's gone wrong in relationships at board level, and right, of course.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I was very lucky. I, I had very supportive investors. So. For example, Richard uh, helped a lot because he had operational background, and I think that that counts for a huge amount. I think VCs who have operational background can appreciate what's going on in the company and be very helpful, not just money terms, but but in other ways. Because he had
0: Datanomic, which he sold to Oracle India. Yeah,
1: so that was really good to have him on the board. And also, the other thing was um, when my chairman retired, I brought on board a lady called Terry Vegard, uh, my chairwoman. And she was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, her and I clicked just, you know, from the first moment we met. Very sort of similar people. But T- she was. A technical background,
0: was she? she was,
1: yeah, she yeah. ran all of Lucent's basically infrastructure.
0: Right. So she'd run, you know. And she'd gone portfolio at some point, had she?
1: She was chairwoman of IP Access. She was chairwoman of another Cambridge company
0: Cambridge Broadband.
1: Yes. And then she was chairwoman of ERISA. Okay. And she'd moved from US to here to get married to her husband, Mike McTeigh, who was also portfolio but more on the PLC type companies. Yeah. I mean she was a great mentor to me mm-hmm. and I'd gone so well. I don't know whether this was a woman to woman thing I I have no idea, but it was it was just brilliant and you know, that relationship and she she taught me so much. I mean I was first time CEO and frankly, had not been in any kind of leadership role, and just to have her bounce ideas off her and things like that.
0: There must have been some lows in terms of hiring and firing, I suspect.
1: Yeah, there was. So, I mean, early on, I made a lot of my mistakes sort of in the product number one. (laughs) So I, I hired a VP sales who, you know, on the face of it, looks really good. One of my VCs suggested it. He was a very uh, senior person at Ericsson. He was a GM, I think, general manager. And he came and became VP of sales. And that was, I think, not a good idea because big company... And then they come to a small company. It doesn't quite
0: work, and I think that's
1: uh, yeah. That was my first. And, and,
0: and high-level sales guys, no girls can sell themselves well, but whether they can sell the product. Yeah, he was
1: a, he was well. a lovely guy, and I, and I enjoyed working with him. It's just knowing what I know now. I, I you know, i certainly wouldn't wouldn't have made that hire. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, some of the really hard ones were sort of you know, changing the technical team mm. and manoeuvring that whole sort of transition that was challenging but needed to be done.
0: Including uh, your husband, of course. Well, you had exactly, to move him. exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm still married to him. <laughs> I managed to get
0: through that. Well will tell.
1: Um Yeah, I have fired a few people.
0: <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to the exit then. So yeah. were you approached or did you decide to sell us? Or did the investors start to sell? What was that process? So
1: 2011... Uh, when I say we were being really successful, I mean things were going amazing, and we were executing flawlessly. And I knew that there were companies that were kind of hovering around. You know, you, you kind of get a feel that
0: to purchase you know. rather than to compete.
1: No, right? they were just, you know, you, when you get attention from, you know, Oracle or IBM, you know, when when you when you get a certain level of attention, you know that you know you're on their radar. They're watching you, kind of thing. And we were profitable, you know, in 2000, we'd be a bit positive, we were growing at so 60, 70% a year on year, and there was no sort of stopping that. And so we, we could see that growth continuing. So I knew that there was going to be potentially interest. So I started without knowing when I was going to exit the company, I started doing a lot of preparation, probably 12 months before the exit actually happened. I actually asked Richard to give me his list of stuff that he needed to prepare for Oracle. Yes. Because I thought if I prepare a data room that meets Oracle's needs, then I can meet anyone's needs. Yeah. So he helped me, sort of gave me the list, and sort of went through item by item. I mean, frankly, I was absolutely surprised by the amount of information they wanted. But, you know, I'm glad that. I, yeah, yeah, I because saw it was sort of ready detail. and available
0: when you. Exactly. So, it, yeah.
1: got my exec team together. By that time, I had a full exec team. So, you know, effectively complete. There was no other sort of major slot that Bill needed filling. So, basically, carved out the various bits. And gave it to them, and said, "Right, we need to get this data room sorted out within the next six months, and actually put a project together to review and make sure that that's all done." Mm. And then, once we put the sort of we got the data room and everything sorted, I also invited folks who had purchased companies on behalf of other bigger companies. So we brought in, for example, you probably know Phil Claridge.
0: No, I don't.
1: No, okay. So, Phil was chief architect for a major billing company in Cambridge. And they had. Geneva Technology. That's right. Okay. And they had acquired a number of companies. So, he had been the person that did the due diligence on all the technology and everything else. At that time, he wasn't working. And, you know, I said, hey, would you like to come and give my guys a practice run? Mm. And so, you know, effectively we did practice runs and then mm-hmm. and the first sort of practice due diligence, my heads of products and development completely fell apart. <laughs> as, you know, as we would expect, which was good because it was in a friendly environment. And then we went back and said, okay, so here's what we need to do. And
0: we did. This so is doing. before you'd identified somebody to sell to even, wasn't it? Well,
1: I was talking to... Oh, you were talking to the potential yeah, so I was talking to these guys who were paying attention to us. So about partnership... And sort of carrying on some of those conversations. We were never for sale. So if anyone said to me, you know, what are, you, are you thinking about exiting? I said, no, we're not. We're completely focused on execution. We're doing so well. We've got this customer. We've got so all I talked about was our success and how we're going to go and, you know, dominate the world, i.e. if you move too slowly, you will become really expensive mm. for you to get. But whilst I was doing that externally, internally, I was making sure that the team was prepared for Eventual event. So we did a bunch of practice runs. We looked at bankers. So we went through the process of, you know, the beauty parade of bankers and so on. We chose one, but we didn't appoint them officially. So uh, we chose Armour partners. So shook hands and whatever, but they weren't officially appointed and they were told very strictly they're not to say anything Mm -hmm. about shopping the company or anything like that. However, they were meant to help us prepare all the financials and the position anchors.
0: And you paid them yeah. for that?
1: Yeah, it was like a yes. monthly retainer. retainer. Yeah. And that was good because it got our
0: CFO ready. In your mind, you were moving towards exit at this point, weren't you?
1: Well, yeah, but I was kind of preparing, but I didn't know. You know, the exit could have been two years away, could have been three years away, could have been six months away, but mm. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball, but I knew the company was so successful. Yes. That eventually we would get there, yes. but I wanted to be prepared yes. when it happens. So actually, interestingly, when the first offer came in, it was on my birthday, <laughs> September tenth, two thousand twelve, and yeah, it was a first offer. And as soon as that came in, we appointed Arma
0: officially. They came in. They just wrote you. an yeah, I just. Email I saying, literally,
1: I we, literally got an email.
0: Did they put a price in there? Did yes. The amount of they were going to pay? No, yeah.
1: It was a proper offer.
0: Right, okay. Yeah, and I've been talking
1: talking to the CEO of that company about partnership, how do we get together. We had some great meetings Mm. and that kind of thing, and eventually he just went, right, then we want to buy you.
0: How did you work out what to pay, though? You knew your figures because you hadn't released them? No,
1: I hadn't, but he just came in with an offer.
0: Was that the one you took? No. Okay, fine. (laughs) Let's carry on with the story. Yes,
1: but we needed that first offer to go, and then kind of for the banker to do whatever he needed to do. So the banker then took the first offer and went to everybody who I had, uh, had been talking to, warming up, you know, having dinners and that kind of thing. And then went to a whole bunch of companies that said, by the way,
0: mm. reset's going. So an auction? What, did it become an auction? Yeah.
1: And then we had, in the end, we had Amdocs, we had JDSU, we had Oracle, and we had this other company. Smaller, but yeah. you know, they, they put the first offer in. Right. And then basically, Oracle dropped out, and then it was between Amdocs and JDSU. And then um, Amdocs wanted Earnout. JDSU paid us cash oh. only, no Earnout. And in fact, uh, similar
0: numbers were they? Or?
1: Similar numbers one with Earnout, one without, yeah. and one with Golden Handcuffs. So not only were they paying us cash, yeah. they were actually paying us some more cash just to yes, be with to them you, exactly, and to yeah. keep it going. And yeah, then,
0: yeah. So then you went into, you set the offer and went through DD, et cetera. Next.
1: So we signed essentially just before Christmas or just after Christmas. We signed the exclusivity. The mm. exclusivity was only meant to last for two weeks because we wanted that to be as short mm. as possible for obvious reasons because we wanted to keep pushing them. And the thing that, again, we did really well, I think, was to essentially keep that whole process really, really tight. And make sure that we deliver on the numbers as we're going through that due diligence Mm. process so the last thing you want is for you to falter on your sales quarter numbers when you're doing that so we were smashing the numbers we were doing the the sales numbers whilst we were going through that due diligence process so we signed just after christmas and then all the legals, all the due diligence, everything was done by 7th of March. And we closed the deal on 7th of March and we announced it.
0: And they didn't ship at the price? It's
1: no. We made sure that we put in provisions in the term sheet at the beginning to make sure that they're not going to chip at the price.
0: Well done. And the, no, I found the number on the internet. Are you prepared to say what it is? I mean, it is out there. The yeah, sale value it,
1: it was $85 million, million dollars, yeah. plus the cash that was in the bank, plus... All the sort of golden handcuffs, so it came, I think the total in the end came to like a
0: 92 million. And how long did you packet. stay for?
1: I was meant to stay for 12 months, and that was the kind of the deal. But I stayed for 18 months to make sure everyone was you know, right. handed over.
0: So one question before we move on to your next stage yeah. of life. We talk in Cambridge about not growing gorillas, i.e. not growing big companies. We talk about that in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, think if you hadn't exited. I mean, obviously you had investors there that were probably VCs that wanted to exit. And you're in that industry now. Could this have been a 500 million or a billion company?
1: Not this business. I think the business that I'd built could have gone further. I mean, in fact, we continued growing. So, you know, we didn't have a red face after acquisition, which was important to us. Yeah. yeah. Because I wanted that legacy to continue and, and you know, the business still doing well. Mm. But, you know, it wasn't a, a billion dollar business, no. let's put it this way. And yes, we could have grown it and we probably, you know, could have got more yeah. money for that. But it was the right time to say. And also the other thing to say is that because I'd been doing it for 10 years. Yes, if you was, wanted a break. <laughs> I was tired. And if I'm being totally honest, and the exec team and some of them had been with me for the best part of that period. And so it, uh, it, was, it was the right time for all of us.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of Shirin's podcast. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did to hear how Shirin built and sold Ariso. I was particularly intrigued to hear how she learned so much from the pitfall of a lost contract and how much time and effort she spent to ensure the company was ready for a potential buyer. Be sure to visit our website, InvestedInvestor.com, to hear more podcasts and find details of how to buy our first book.